I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going on to this week's show. All right, folks, welcome to episode 103. This is my conversation with Peter Rowan, part two. If you have not heard it yet, backtrack one episode and go back and check out the first part of my conversation with Peter Rowan. And this is the continuation from right where we left off. Please enjoy part two of my episode with Peter Rowan. Yeah, so, I mean, I began to hear bluegrass in Harvard Square. I heard Keith and Rooney and the mm-hmm. Charles River Valley Boys. And I got to be friends with Joe Val. And then that's where I started learning the bluegrass. Okay. Because, I mean, I asked Joe if, if we could play a little bit. I wanted to learn it by that point. Well, one of the things that got me was the D28 guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, I went from a Telecaster to a, a little sort of mahogany double O. But when I heard the bluegrass guys hitting that D28, it went, uh-oh. It's a, it's a, thi- it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> i got to have one of them things. <laughs> and it feels as big on me now as it did when I was younger. Right. Um, uh, it's interesting because Elvis was playing a, D, a D18. Oh, was he? You know, okay. and, yeah. So, you know, you got you got early pictures in your head of how you hang a guitar on you like a big, big Martin like that. Cause Elvis did it and he got a lot of photos of him playing guitar. Yeah. And so, and so it was like, it was like an item, man. And the bluegrassers were making it ring, you know, and it was yeah. like, wow, it was acoustic. So I, I, I did, I left electric music for a while, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, just got into this whole acousticness. And when I heard Bill Monroe, it used to, we used to go to a record shop called Wurlitzer's. They sold organs and pianos and this Wurlitzer's music in Harvard Square and, and, and they sold records. And cool. you, they had about five record listening booths. Okay. So you, you could take an LP and take it in the listening booths and listen to the whole thing. Nobody ever said, uh, you've heard enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I began to listen to all oh, whatever I could find. And when I heard Bill Monroe, I realized that he was playing the blues in a way that connected with, with, with what I was learning in, to play an acoustic guitar and bluegrass, you know, yep. different role for the guitar. But one of the first songs that I heard was uh, Six White Horses. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or they call it two white horses, I think. But it was um, in Bill Monroe's recording, along with In the Pines, and they were using those a lot of blues orientation. And uh, you know, later when I was a bluegrass boy working with Bill, I asked him where the where did he first hear the blues? You know, because I knew he, he had a mentor, uh, Arnold Schultz, who was a black man from Mrs. Uh, from Louisiana. He, he he's from New Orleans. According to Ronnie McCurry, uh, who's a great historian of bluegrass, uh, Arnold Schultz would would come up and work the summers in the fall in Kentucky, and then once winter got in, he'd go back to New Orleans. And okay. he he worked he worked with Bill Monroe's Uncle Penn. He played guitar he played guitar with Uncle Penn. Well, so I thought I was going to hear about Arnold Schultz, but when I asked Bill, I said, "Where did you?" first really hear the blues he said well when he hired flat and scruggs uh they were he said they were so green 
that I had to take them to New Orleans <laughs> Teach for them. them to learn to learn some, you know, funk, baby. You know? Right, right. Oh, that's awesome. And wow. yeah, he told me that. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and I said, "Really? How long did you stay down?" He said, "They, I took. I, he said I kept them boys, and we worked out of there for two and a half months." Wow. You know. <laughs> I mean, see, Bill, at that time, because the Monroe brothers had been so big, he had made a deal with Charlie that Charlie would get everything east of, of the Mississippi River for a while. And so Bill went to Texas. He went to Louisiana. He worked the whole West oh, Western okay. world and, and picked up a lot of music. And I, I said, what kind of music could you hear in New Orleans in those days? He said, well, a man could hear any kind of music. And I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I asked him, uh, like, what what were the styles, you know? Because uh, the thing with Bill was that he would take out his mandolin about one in the morning, yeah, and he he'd play for about forty minutes, and he'd cover some ground, but it uh -huh. wouldn't be all it wouldn't be a bunch of fiddle tunes. Uh -huh. It'd be kind of like whatever the soul of High Lonesome really is. It would be like a very tremolo -y and slow and haunting sounding, you know. Uh, wow. Um, and when he was, it, after, when I sat down, I'd been driving and the other driver jumped in and was taken over and I came back and I'd heard Bill playing for almost an hour and I came back and I sat. This is now, on the bus. Most, yeah, and most people, you know, at the time were like, you know, don't bother Bill, right? You know, because okay. he's, he's the genius. But I... I was naive enough to just, uh, I mean, he knew, he, he, he kind of saw me coming. I was a greenhorn. And, uh, but I was as, as enamored of what, what was played musically off stage as I was of doing the shows on stage. Yeah. Bec because Bill had a, a way of passing the time musically, like we all do, right? We all sit around and play a little bit. Sure, of course. So, but Bill was never just like got a show to do. Bill was always in music and that was the th thing about him. So when I heard him playing back there in the back of the bus, I f finished my shift and somebody climbed in the seat and we'd change on the fly, you know? Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> get, get to the top of hills, throw that bus in neutral, climb out of that seat. <laughs> yeah, the person would climb in wow. and, uh, and, you know, whisper a prayer and try and, double clutch it back into fifth years. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back and, and Bill was playing this haunting stuff. And the first thing he said, you're playing this kind of like really mystical stuff. And he said, when he finished, he, he addressed me, which meant that I was recognized as being there. I was part of his moment. It wasn't, I wasn't intruding. He was yeah. being not friendly. He said, that there's the Indian sound. <laughs> wow. And I, 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 he meant American Indian. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was very much tuned into that, uh, what that was. And he wrote Cheyenne, you know, mm -hmm. where there, there's a whole Indian cry in there. In fact, my whole thing about Land of the Navajo was uh, based on the fact that Bill had chanted Indian sounding chanting in one of his songs. Okay. And his thing, it was... Hey, 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 hey,
and play. It's a break, you know, it's a fast tune, uh, but he chants in it like that. Right. And so, so, I mean, I felt like, well, Land of the Navajo is just an extension of, of okay. those, of that kind of an idea. Yeah. So he said, he said, that's the Indian sound. I said, wow. I said, and so he's playing a little more and, this was a dialogue, you know, and I said, mm-hmm. where did you first hear the blues? And he told me about New Orleans. And, and he said, I, when I asked him, I said, what kind of, like, like what kind of blues or whatever? Mm-hmm. He said, he said, well, he said, you had the stomp time. You had the jump time. Mm-hmm. You had the waltz. And of course you had the slow drag. Oh yeah, I had never heard of the slow drag before. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it is that is a big part of what is called the low down blues. Had he like worked on that kind of music at all, or he had just sort of absorbed it? A friend of mine, Greg Garing, and I have sat around and parsed this a little bit. Uh, Greg can play piano, and one day we were messing around. I said. We were doing Rocky Road Blues or something, uh, Bill, Bill's tune. I said, hey, Greg played mandolin with Jimmy Martin a little bit before he you know, got into his country music thing. I said, play, uh, play the, on the piano, play Bill's mandolin solo. <laughs> and we just almost fell over just because Bill's right is playing the right hand of a a basically a boogie woogie or barrel house piano yeah, when yeah. he plays when, when he plays the blues interesting i mean it's it's but because it's in a in a kind of a, i wouldn't say a hoedown beat but it's kind of in a 2/4 polka-ish bluegrassy time i mean bill he he thought a lot about it he really did he mm-hmm. he once said to me he he said, you know, Pete, I've had to keep as much out of bluegrass as I put into it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's a that's a heavy quote, man. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so it's 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 pretty vast. But the right hand on the piano is what Bill was picking up on the playing the blues. Th- that totally makes sense, actually. I I get that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We didn't really get into like how you got that gig in the first place, but what was your what was your overall experience well, pl- playing well, for him? Uh, well, the thing is, okay, Bill Keith and Jim Rooney uh, were were a little had a little band, and Joe Val, who had played mandolin with them, had gone over to play with uh, Bob Siggins and John Cook and the Charles River Valley Boys, uh, and these were Harvard Square right. bluegrass bands. And then you had the Lilly Brothers and Don Stover across the river in Boston at the Hillbilly Ranch. And so uh, the one guy who moved between both scenes was Joe Val. And Joe had been with Keith and Rooney, and then now he was working with uh, the River Valley Boys. And so uh, Joe and I had been, and I had been playing together, and uh, I had been picking up some mandolin from me playing with Joe Val. I played guitar, he played mandolin, but I was always learning mandolin on the side. I loved the mandolin. Mm-hmm. So Bill Keith hired me to play with him and Jim. So I became the tenor singer in Keith and Rooney's band. Okay, cool. And, yeah, and now Bill Keith had been a bluegrass boy with Bill Monroe, 
And Bill Monroe was coming up to play a show up in Boston. He was going to play Doc Watson's birthday. And it was, uh, they needed, to get, he was coming alone. So Bill Keith put the band together. Okay. He, he got Everett Lilly's son, Everett Jr., to play bass. He got Tex Logan to, to play fiddle. And a young player, uh, Gene Lowinger, came up with Tex from New Jersey. Um, of course, Bill Keith played banjo and he hired me as a guitar player. And I was just totally thrilled. And uh, they came up and we did a couple of shows up in the country, up in Vermont and stuff like that. Played a little Fiddler's Convention or something like that. This was in the fall. How did it go? Like when you walked up on stage with him for the first time, was it pretty smooth sailing? Or We, we had all listened to his music on records. Yeah. And he was, his basic vibe was step up. Okay. Yeah. Don't be shy. <laughs> you know. I mean, he was a good leader. Yeah, you know, he was a good leader. And and was I he think, was he good to you guys, like as relative youngsters that he didn't know? Was he uh, congenial and helpful and stuff? Or well, or? I just remember one of the first nights we were going through some songs, and he stood about fifteen feet away, listening to us stand as a little cluster. Yeah, he he never said anything. He just directed by his his rhythm on the mandolin. Okay. I mean, he, he just defined everything. Yep. His time yep. was very, very steady. Although I still listen to some of those recordings, and I, I swear they cheat a little bit those when they play the instrumentals so fast. What do you mean? Sounds like well, they sound like they jump ahead. Oh, I mean, it's, I called, it's called that. Everybody talks about it. It's called the bluegrass time thing. Uh-huh. And and there is something absolutely amazing about it. The way the old timers played, but. It's not that they sped up. <laughs> it's just that they jumped ahead in the time of the song somehow. I still, I still can't explain it. Like a feel thing more than anything else? Or or do you mean like they're actually like well, jumping? If you're playing a phrase like, you know, a, a, a phrase played square would be like, right? And they would play it. Okay. Just into the next phrase if they did. And, and nobody ever explained it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was very hard to keep up with, with some of those. Uh, well, the thing is, oh, here you go. When the band played, you could you could feel the banjo, uh, keep really good time on the guitar during the banjo, during the fiddle, yeah. during this. But during Bill's solo, he expected the time to be so strong that if he started to do these syncopations, that it wouldn't throw you off. Okay. But it was but it was like holding on to a wild horse. It was right. just like <laughs> very difficult to keep time. Yeah. When yeah. this when this guy's doing all this like talk about playing on the front ed- edge of the beat but uh-huh. in time it, it, which was weird. You know, cuz it sounds like you're speeding up and you sound like you're falling behind but you're not. Uh-huh. And uh, just one of the little bluegrass tricks that you had to learn. <laughs> Yeah, it was Bill Keith that, that put it together, and, mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Monroe said, uh, you ought to come to Nashville, Pete, I can help you. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, he may have thought I was going to be a country music st- uh, artist. I don't know. But I, I went there assuming he meant join his band. Okay. And, and, and did, that, you know, did over he, time. Did he have a, a band back in Nashville at that time, or was he sort of bandless? Well, he, well, he, had, he had some local folks that he played with. Okay. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, a pretty steady fiddler. It, I mean, Bill wasn't touring a lot. 
Right. He was in his early 50s at that point, and rock and roll had pretty much blown the wind out of the sails of, of bluegrass. Bluegrass was a chart music uh, in the early 50s. Blue Moon of Kentucky was by Bill Monroe's a chart record, and then Elvis, of course, put it through the roof. But the Stanley Brothers, they were on the charts. Yeah. You know, yeah. nobody Amazing. ever consi- nobody considered bluegrass an esoteric music. It was just a, another part of the variety of country music before everything got super defined. So you moved to Nashville and kind of joined his band. And as you said, he wasn't touring a lot, but, and, but you guys did some sessions and, and I know that you're on a, well, but then, then things change, you see. Okay. I mean, he wasn't touring a lot, but at that time, Mike Seeger and Ralph Rinsler, Ralph was uh, managing Bill and Doc Watson and he was also in charge of the Smithsonian Folklife thing, which was the Smithsonian Institute's outreach into the folk traditions of America, which Ralph was championing. championing. Uh, and he was also, also big into the Balfour Brothers and folks in Louisiana. And Ralph, he was very mobile. He'd be in Nashville. We'd drive up to North Carolina, go visit folks who lived up in the country with one cow and a little uh, <laughs> little shed over a stream where they kept their butter and cream and you know you know really the whole thing of the discovering the roots of, of what America was was through the music and through the people in in the mountains of the south at, at least for that part of it and uh, they did an article that came out in sing out magazine called Bill Monroe the daddy of bluegrass music. <laughs> Because Flat and Scruggs were getting all the kind of, you know, recognition because they were on television, yeah, on the Andy Griffith show, and also the, did the theme for the Beverly Hillbillies, not the Andy Griffith show, but the Beverly Hillbillies, yeah. Uh, the Dillards were the the band, and the Kentucky Colonels did a little bit with Andy Griffith on the Andy Griffith Mayberry show. But um, because Flat and Scruggs were identified as what bluegrass was. Ralph, who knew Bill and was managing him, wanted to have the uh, recognition that that Bill was the originator. Okay. That it, that it was his band uh, in the beginning that that started the whole deal. So they wrote this article in Sing Out magazine, which it's it when it, it described the whole thing, where Bill came from, his whole history. So yeah. he became he, he, college kids now were exposed to him. So when he came up to Boston, it was to play for the, you know, the folk music enthusiasts in the Boston area. The kind of, Ralph felt that Bill could, people could really hear Bill's thing if, if they give given half a chance of Bill. Like almost reintroducing him. Reintroducing him to a younger crowd. Yeah. yeah. When I came to Nashville and joined the band, then I, I also brought in another player, uh, Lamar Greer, from the D.C. area that I had met from Washington, D.C. area, yeah. where Mike Seeger and, and Smiley Hobbs and many, many country gentlemen and many, many bluegrass bands were in that scene. That was like a whole scene, the, the Baltimore, Washington area. And Lamar had that wonderful feel in his banjo playing. So uh, when, uh, when Don Leinberger quit, when I joined the band, you know, they were, it was very slow when I joined the band, you know, the Grand Ole Opry was everything, you know, he played, he played every weekend that he wasn't away and he wasn't away at all. So I think what started to happen was uh, 
an energy began to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, with once I got uh, him in the band, and then we we traveled and. There was a young fiddle player on the West Coast who was uh, studying under Scotty Stoneman, who was quite a vibrant player. Yeah. And Richard Green. And he was, at the time, began to play in the Bluegrass Boys, which was Ralph Linzer's old band with John Harold, Bob Yellen. And uh, as, as, we be, as Bill began to get busy, and you know, he was 55 years old. This is like 66 kind of era? 65. 65, 65. okay. See, I was down there. In, in and out of the area from the 63 playing playing on the Opry and then going away and coming back. It was like a transition. Mm-hmm. And so by, I was, by 64, I was in, living in Nashville and that's my debut as a member of the band was uh, in October of 64. And so by the spring of 65, we had the young Gene Lowinger playing fiddle and we toured, we went to England. It was like, I guess Ralph did everything he could as he was was becoming more more uh, full time uh, Doc Watson's manager, but he did everything he could to to promote Bill as you know a progenitor and a keeper of tradition. Yeah. You know, like yeah. when they say bluegrass is deep, it it is deep. I mean, but not everybody knows how or can go to how deep it really is. But it sort of doesn't matter because it's such a great style mm-hmm. that like you know. <laughs> you just hear all kinds of people playing bluegrass. I guess sincerity is part of it, you know, and sincerity and, and a kind of a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to say it. It's a kind of a, um, and, uh, of all the different styles of bluegrass, I think the the, the most appealing still is this sort of enthusiastic uh, sincerity uh, where people actually learn their instrument. They haven't, got, haven't gotten to be too, uh, too smug about it, (laughs) but they go like. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, here's a song, and I think it's in the key of, what key is this one in? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you ask the bandmate, you know, they go, oh, it's D. Oh, yeah, uh, D, this is the one in D. You know, it's like, this is very endearing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so once the, once that band has solidified, though, with Richard Green on fiddle and Lamar on banjo and uh, Jimmy Monroe on bass, I guess the the more the powers that be went, Bill has got a crack band now. You know, it's not yeah. just like just the in-town folks just kind of playing his music. I mean, he was bunch always an Opry. whippersnappers. He was, yeah, a bunch of whippersnappers. And he, he was always an Opry star. I mean, you know, but... You know, when it, my first show with Bill Monroe, the next week, 
and came back and we weren't traveling that much that fall. Um, we didn't travel much until March of the next year. Mm-hmm. The union scale was uh, $17.50 for Friday night at the opera. <laughs> Hasn't changed and, much. <laughs> yeah. And then Saturday night when you did two shows, you got twenty four fifty. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That bargain. <laughs> but um, once that band was in place, there was an excitement generated, you know, it was excitement, but you know, you go through, you go through a lot when you're a touring band, as you know, you know, just like you just, you you go through lifetimes of relationships and all kinds of things that. And so things really did pick up for him in that era when when you guys joined and and you started touring a fair amount. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, no, we were working and we worked colleges. He had never Mm -hmm. played in hardly any colleges, but Ralph's, Belief, you know, I and mean, Ralph was not alone. I mean, Mike Seeger and all these other folks that really knew the scope of folk music knew that Bill had a lot to give. But, but you know, he was he was quite angry for a while. Was he? It was tough. Yeah, he was very. Uh, he he told me once. He said he said you you don't know how hard it is coming up. You know, you boys today. You got it easy. What kind of a guy was he like to work for? Was he was he pretty demanding of you guys, or was he at the at an age where he was just kind of well he was a man of few words really okay you know he he never really described what he wanted but if you weren't doing it you knew it you'd you'd hear about it yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. do you have well you would no he wouldn't say anything he'd just vibe you really (laughs) (laughs) you'd be you'd be very uncomfortable going i must be doing something wrong And he'd leave it up to you to figure it out. Uh, yeah, you know, you'd be standing in a circle of jam session. And all of a sudden, he'd be standing in front of you, and you'd be playing to his back, and be like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have recollections of the studio sessions you did with him? There was a an A and R guy in there from Decca Records, Harry Silverstein, and I guess he and Bill had worked out the songs they were going to do beforehand, so that <laughs> it, it, we. We never really got to rehearse. We just those are just learning the songs and playing them in the studio. Uh-huh. Um, I have to say too that I, Bill knew how to keep it fresh. You know, he didn't want it over overly rehearsed. Okay, yeah. Uh, although, although I know in later years, producers got him to, you know, tighten things or, up a better, t- tighten things up, organize, organize more and more. Yeah. Well, and I can't tell whether it was from not wanting to. You know, he was a mysterious guy. You know, he uh-huh. if if we did rehearse, he he would just say, "You boys play a few numbers," <laughs> and and he'd sit there and listen, and 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 look at his royalty statements <laughs> that came in the mail in that building. We'd rehearse it at the old uh, Opry building in the room where Hank Williams first made his demos. Actually, wow, yeah, the old the old uh, what they called that the Opry. It was sort of the office side of the. WSM organization at the time. Part of the Ryman or not? not no, it was a separate building. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, we rehearsed upstairs in this little room that was sort of a studio. Uh, but Bill would just listen to us play, but he'd be, uh, he got his mail in that building. And all he'd, he would just, you know, if it was a royalty statement, it, he would put the check in his hat. <laughs> and, and other things just went in the wastebasket, unopened. But just the checks, please. <laughs> just the checks, thank you very much. And then when, we, then when we finished rehearsing, you know, we'd play for an hour or so, and he'd, and he'd take out his mandolin, finally. And he, but every time he would play the shoddish. 
he would play this thing, this German interpretation of a Scottish uh, Strathsby called a Schottisch. Wow. Yeah. What was that all about? Well, it, the rhythm is... It, it survived in Western swing down in Texas. Even to, to this day, Schottisches are played at the dances. It's a... Uh, how to describe it? But I think in it what were some secrets of what Bill would call t- the timing. Uh, one is that triplet, that you have to play a triplet when you start a phrase. You you know, mm-hmm. instead of that, you know, you had to play the, you know, that little triplet, which if you go through all the bluegrass uh, of the years of development of his style, he used to play a lot of triplets when Flat and Scruggs were in the band. I think the time it was pre the pre Elvis Blue Moon of Kentucky, where Bill's sense of uh, mandolin playing was much more melodic. Okay. During the tune, uh, he would just play these. He'd play with the things that's possible on a mandolin, like triplets, because you got the double strings. You can go over them and kind of get all these wonderful timing things. And then once when Elvis did Blue Moon of Kentucky, Bill kind of went to this hard backbeat. You know, this real, you know chop they called it the his backbeat yeah. chop because elvis had it that happened after elvis did blue moon of kentucky so bill added that 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 backbeat chop became predominant i'll say you know and then the fiddles be, became the more more present uh yeah he's almost like the drummer yeah but you know if you listen to a one tune called sweetheart you done me wrong Mm-hmm. With uh, Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs and Chubby Wise, it it is so mellifluous. It is unbelievable. They're all playing kind of very freely, because the time the, the time I think was better. The time was 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 more. Uh, it, nobody was defining it. You know, the guitar was doing its thing. The bass was doing its thing. The banjo was. I mean, Earl Scruggs is timing. I mean, I, I respect all banjo players that really go for it, but. I mean, I think Earl's timing was something special, very, very special. Um, you know, and he had, he had a way of doing his role uh, that was um, unusual. And I think it freed Bill up. I think it freed him up. Even though it's a, like a song like Will You Be Loving Another Man, which is a fast song, Bill doesn't chop, but he's he's playing all through the song. You can hear him just wailing away, you know, just <laughs> doing his thing. Which later on, it was chopping and then solo, yeah, chopping yeah. And then solo. He'd still play a little backup, but he kind of relegated the backup then to the fiddles later on. And uh, yeah, and I think too that the chemistry with Flat and Scruggs and uh, Chubby Wise uh, that was very, very different and very special. I, you know what I mean? It's like the Beatles were the Beatles. Yeah, the, you know, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys were Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. I mean, and I love all of the incarnations of the Bluegrass Boys and Bill, but you know, yeah, I, th- I sort other- of I sort of think of it in a similar light as as to like Buck Owens or something. You know, when that when that main Buckaroo band was 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 ticking on all cylinders. That's yeah, of when like- it all comes together, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. olden in the way. 
another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, do you mind talking a little bit about that project? Like, obviously, you no, no, I don't, you I don't mind. Um, you have a long history with with Grisman and 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 Jerry Garcia and and Vassar Clemens was in that. And I'm just curious how that project came together and and if you so have... I was in this rock and roll band called C Train and and Richard Green, the fiddler from Bill Monroe's band was in the band with me and we had gone from the West coast and living back East. And I, I just got really tired of the grind and, and the sense of, we were always trying to pay off this debt to the management mm-hmm. and it, and, and also my two brothers had moved out West to, you know, Northern California, basically with David Grisman as their producer. And oh, David okay. and I, David and I had been playing together for a long time before I joined C train. Um, and, uh, we had had a band called earth opera right? for lecture records. I just, uh, man, I just got, I, 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 it was another career buster. You know, I'm famous for, <laughs> for like just getting it right there and then going, ah, shit, man. <laughs> when you decide to leave a band, suddenly it, 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 you realize you could be there forever. Yeah. I'd come back out west to uh, hang out with my brothers a little bit, and uh, I was—I wanted to get away from New England too. You know, it just it was very crowded and very hard to deal with the weather in the wintertime touring and everything. <laughs> you know, and it—it uh, it, was—it was good to have a band like Sea Train. It was a really rocking band, and we played a lot of dates with the band, and that was fun. Anyway, I came back out west and. Uh, hanging out with David Grisman and who's producing my brothers for Columbia records. Yeah. And we're just, every morning we're just picking a little bit, you know, Stinson beach was very laid back and we were like barefoot a lot. And is, that, sort of, is that Bay area? Is that where you were? Yeah. Just North of San Francisco on the okay. coast. Yeah. And uh, one day he said, you know, hey, Garcia lives up the hill here. He, he likes to play. I was like, Oh yeah, let's, so we, we went up and saw Jerry greeted us with the banjo strung out, hung, strapped on in the really? yard. Oh, yeah. Then <laughs> we just started. Garcia was just a bubbling, joyous person. Were you aware of him, like some of the psychedelic bands of the Bay Area at the time? Well, I had. I was aware of Jerry. Yeah. Because he had learned a lot of the same tunes that I had done. We both done a song called Cold Rain and Snow. Oh, okay. The early Grateful Dead version. And then I had done a version with a band called Mule Skinner. Then David Grisman and myself and Clarence White. Clarence White. Yeah. Uh, And Richard Green, Bill Keith. Uh, So we just started picking up at Jerry's house. And um, it it was all good energy, all very positive, all sort of building. And the singing was fun. You know, we had a a nice trio of voices that were uh, very different. Each voice was different. Uh, So so it made a nice combination. And... um, and we were about to, we had some dates coming up and it was like, who are we going to get to play fiddle? We had had, John Hartford had played a little with us. Richard Green had played a little with us, but they were all tied up with other things. So I still had the number from the days when I used to go down and play in Monroe, Louisiana, and then have breakfast at uh, Rule Yarbrough's house up in Alabama on the way home and listen to tapes of their New Year's party with Vassar Clemens. And of course, we knew who Vassar was. But Vassar had, you know, pretty much run the course of being a bluegrass guy and then played with the Judy Lynn show and become a, you know, 
then he quit, you know, quit oh, the really? road. And, okay. Yeah. And was working uh, in a family business back in Florida, and but he was still playing. And I had heard these tapes when we were traveling. And uh, so I called up Rule. I still had his number and he gave me Vazder's number. Yeah. Uh, it was only his five. Five years since I'd been a bluegrass boy. Okay. Uh, in all that time, we'd done th- I'd, we'd done three. Oh, how many projects? We'd done two Earth Opera, Mule Skinner, Mule Skinner. and two Sea Train. Five in five, yeah, in five or six records in five years. Man, and and it, and it made time seem like we'd done a lot. A lot of time had gone by, but uh, it, was only, it was a small amount of time. It's funny how time appears, right? You know, I know what what appears long. And uh, so it wasn't that long. And uh, Vassar was on board right from the start. He said, really? Yeah, he just, uh, yeah. He said, oh, I, I'd love to play with you. And he knew who I was. And I, I so that's when I began to realize that by being with Bill, I'd become known even though I was not a. You had a reputation. Well, you know, I mean, players, players knew who, players know who the players are. Of course, you know yeah. it's just like it's not always about publicity and you know uh, commerciality. The players are always, especially in bluegrass, it's all about the players. It's like I said, you know, uh, it's, the, it's the people I met that got me interested because they were interested in me and interested in in the music. Yeah, and uh, so Vassar joined us, and then we he would just come out to the West Coast, and we do uh, two or three. A long week or something like that. You know, Jerry was into it. Uh, and the dead were sort of taking were, a slight break. Okay, so he had time. They, they they weren't they weren't touring heavily. So so there was room for yeah. Jerry's side project. Yeah. But then then they decided to tour, and that's when we did our Olden and the Ways one tour, piggybacking on a Grateful Dead tour. Oh my God! And really? it was not. Yeah, it was. Well, we only did about four dates around the Philadelphia, New York area. Yeah. Um, and Ramblin' Jack Elliott was on that tour. Uh, so it was nice to see Jack. Wow, that's quite uh, the show. But, but yeah, but you, it, it, you could see that it was hard on Jerry, even though he was, you know, willing to try and do too much. I mean, he really did. But he was just being treated differently, uh, or, or what was the. Well, no, it's just the, the bluegrass shows. He was starting to get really a lot of uh, uh, exposure and, you know, people coming up to him and everything like that. And in the Grateful Dead context, uh, the audience was kept away, you know, in the they were bigger shows, really bigger shows. In the bluegrass world, nobody, well, nobody really bothered him. But when fans knew that Jerry was around, they would just, you know, Fuck. you'd they'd sort of flock. Yeah. Mostly, mostly young guys. Really? You know? Yeah. Um, and they'd, they'd have girls with them, but it was mostly guys who saw Jerry as a kind of a brighter reflection of themselves, <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, it, that was pressure for him. And a lot of bluegrass dates were outdoors and Jerry had allergies. Oh, man. <clears throat> and so, you know, so you get that outdoor, ambience and then he was uncomfortable you know right and i think it the, the situation wasn't as controlled as with the grateful dead yeah and so the grateful the greg they were compared to olden in a way were just highly organized and yet you know jerry would still have his his own uh 
you know, his own crew with him. Mm-hmm. He'd have uh, Steve Parrish would still be on the old and in the way gigs watching out for Jerry. He was like his handler or something? No, he's just road manager. Okay, yeah. You know, uh, but but then, you know, again, Jerry was, his star was rising. And so he became very busy. The Grateful Dead came back together strong. And they were like, they were like determined to not, you know, I guess they, as, as, as a band, they had meant maybe they had been together 10 years and they had accomplished something, but they came back with heavier management and more organization. And um, it just became more difficult. What was old in the way going to be, you know, right. A, A little, a little side project or this or that. And then David decided he was going to get into making his music, his own solo music. And we all decided, I think, to follow our own, our own course. So when you made that record, was it just like a quick session in a studio somewhere or, or how did you oh, no, make no, the... no. that? We did, we did two separate seven night stands at the boarding house. in oh, San Francisco. Okay. So that whole thing is live. There's no studio element to it. They've never released the the few tunes we did in the studio. Oh, okay, okay. I I thought some of it was was studio, but it's so it's all live. That's cool. Grisman got a hold of the of the rights to put the records out because he yeah. has a record company, and so he. I don't know if he has or hasn't put out any of the studio stuff. But okay. we did. We tried in the studio, but it it, it just, didn't have the thing. It wasn't. It didn't have the spark of the live yeah. uh, night after night. And Jerry was very much a, of a live performer, you right. know, uh, they fed off the crowd, you know, and as you can hear on that record, the crowd was just like, they didn't know what they were getting hit with, but it was bluegrass. <laughs> what was Owsley's role in that whole, in that whole scene? Oh, oh, bear. Well, we lived in the same town, very close by to each other. And, uh, you know, he was an engaging character, and uh, he was self-appointed sound man for old in the way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, one night we were over the, in Berkeley, and we got there late, and we were doing a, a sound check on stage, and the the board was was facing us in a balcony. Yeah, you know, like where lights usually are. And you could see Owsley in there with the green lights from the from the mixing board shining in his face and cables, you know, in his teeth <laughs> and over his shoulders. Yeah. And and his eyes his eyes kind of glowing. And Garcia walks up to me and he goes, Dig Owsley, man, he really loves his job. <laughs> <laughs> but like all good things, you know, I mean it could have been an epic sort of uh, kept going through the years. But when David left, I kind of, Jerry said, uh, you know, that he'd like to keep going. And Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I, I just, uh, I guess I was just a little too tied up in who we were yeah. to think that we, we could hire somebody else. But it was funny, uh, a guy, uh, John Starling, had called me and said, "If if Grisman ever quits, you know, there's this young kid, Ricky Skaggs, who could really do the job." <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> wow, Ricky and Jerry in a band together—that that's a, that's a trippy thought. I sort of regret, even remorse, that did we did we do everything we could? But I guess we did, you know. And all those recordings are consecutive nights. 
And when, when the first record came out, the old in the way record, mm-hmm. they, everybody, or at least David thought that was the only good stuff. The rest of it was not worth putting out. Just the first night. Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So then, <laughs> of course, now there's 12 records of, yeah. you know, at least 12 records of, of those live shows. And they're all good. The thing about Old and Way was that, I mean, if you try and hold it to standards of like strict tempo and a kind of like a... Uh, like a modern sensibility. Well, something about it that's... that's yeah. The charm of holding in the way is what it is. It's just what it is, what it is. It's soulful, (laughs) man. Yeah. It's soulful. It's a bunch of guys really trying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and they're too stoned to know if they're doing any good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, man, we're sort of hitting these weird technical glitches and I've taken up a ton of your time. Um, Yeah. I I really appreciate hearing all this, all these stories and I'll have to, um, I'll have to try and reconnect with you at some point to talk about some of the other projects you've been doing. And, and next time you, you put out a record, we'll, we'll talk again and, and talk about that. But uh, I, I, I really appreciate hearing all this stuff, man. Great, man. I'll look forward to it. All right. Anytime. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Peter. See you, Steve. Thank okay, you. Take care. Bye. All right. That concludes both parts of my conversation with Peter Rowan. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.